Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on April 23rd, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Dr. Sherwin Newland talks about his new book, The Soul of Medicine, Tales from the Bedside. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Sherwin Newland is clinical professor of surgery at the Yale University School of Medicine and a fellow at Yale's Institute for Social and Policy Studies. He's also a prolific writer. How We Die, Reflections on Life's Final Chapter, spent 34 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and won him the National Book Award. Newland's latest work, The Soul of Medicine, Tales from the Bedside, was just published. He visited Scientific American's offices on April 22nd, and we spoke in the magazine's library. Dr. Newland, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a a book that I have to tell you, I was purposely uh, trying to slow down my reading speed at the end because I didn't want it to end. Oh, what a wonderful thing to it, hear. It's too short. <laughs> we need a volume two. It's a, it's a really interesting take on doctors and their patients. Uh, and it's done in this Canterbury Tales, this Chaucer, Chaucerian fashion. Why did you decide to do it that way, first of all? Well, there are two reasons. Uh, the first reason and the primary reason is that like Every hospital probably in the world, at around midnight, the residents get together and start telling stories in the cafeteria. I went through six years of residency, and I think just about every night, unless there was some emergency, I was up in that cafeteria hearing wonderful stories. And I began actually to think of medicine as a bit of a storyteller's art. I can well understand why people like uh, Anton Chekhov or uh, Lou Thomas for a more modern time. Somerset Maugham. Somerset Maugham, as a matter of fact. Uh, the, the greatest medical writer for my money is William, was William Carlos Williams. And essentially, he was telling stories in his stories of his everyday life. And he never magnified anything. It was just as those of us who were doctors recognized it. So I follow in this tradition of telling stories. The reason I chose Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales, is because of the hospital cafeteria thing. Plus, I belong to a small discussion group at the university, and one of the members is this marvelous woman, Marie Baroff, who is one of the world's experts on Chaucer. Mm. And I adore Marie. And some of it is in tribute to her. You spoke of this tradition, and there is this tradition of physician writers. And does it come from the fact that the the stories are inherently dramatic? Uh, you know, that you're, we're never going to run out of hospital-based television programs because the stories are just inherently interesting and, and it's the human drama. Or is it also something about the the practice of medicine requires you to write these charts every day? You have to, I remember very distinctly having caught a glimpse of a chart of, on my mother and the very beginning said a pleasant 81-year-old woman. And I'll never forget that word pleasant mm -hmm. because it it indicated that something else was going on with that doctor there was an evaluation of the person not just the condition we were taught to write our histories 
as narratives. And even the smallest detail in a narrative makes a huge difference because by the time you finish reading someone's narrative, you must have an image in your mind of what that patient looks like, what their personality is like. I understand and from what I've seen that nowadays the younger people are more likely to make short shrift of that narrative because they rely much more on technological maneuvers and uh, new modalities that didn't exist in my time. But this is the way all of our narratives were, and I'm not the least bit surprised to have heard that this word pleasant appeared, because that becomes very important. For example, if someone is acutely ill, do they appear to be pleasant? They don't. If someone is a hypochondriac or uh, has symptoms that are being magnified, are they likely to seem pleasant? Not at all. You can almost tell that this woman is a reliable narrator of her own story just from that one word, pleasant. And if you were to have read the rest of that so-called present history, as we, we always called it, you would have come away recognizing your mother as written by someone who had never laid eyes on her before. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating part of the skill of being a physician that people uh, who are outside that profession probably don't recognize. And that's something that's not really portrayed in popular presentations, uh, ER. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we talk about some of the tales Mm -hmm. in the book? There, there are some that are just kind of inherently interesting. Then there are some that are hilarious. (laughs) Uh, why don't you tell the story very briefly about the, the scene in the emergency room where one surgeon is chasing another one around and he gets his, Foot caught in a stool. It's, oh, this was in the operating room, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, the operating it, room, it became sorry. legendary yeah. at, at the hospital, Canterbury Hospital, as I call it, that I was trained in and continued to work in for 30 years after that about this fellow who uh, was leaning over the operative field. He shouldn't have even been in the operating room. He was observing. And he knew that the surgeon always looked straight down at the always and would focused. not realize that he was in the room. Totally focused. In addition to that is something I mentioned about that particular surgeon in another chapter, which is that he had very bushy brows, so he couldn't have right. seen upward even if he wanted to. Right. So here's this long drink of water of a fellow leaning all the way over and, in fact, saying something to the intern who or the resident who was assisting about the best way to feel this particular vessel. And the professor, as we always called him, turned around in rage. And here this gangly guy sort of leaped off the stool on which he was standing, put one foot without meaning to in a sponge bucket, and then went stomping out of the operating room with the professor chasing him, uttering uh, the professorial equivalents of vile imprecations. (laughs) It's just a a funny scene to to contemplate happening in an, in an operating theater. Uh, you have other stories that are heartbreaking. Uh, there's a terrible story about um, a victim of child abuse and the, the reaction of the medical student who has to confront this situation and, and what it does to the medical student after he has uh, seen the perpetrator of the child abuse. 
The abuser was the boyfriend of the child's mother, and the child had been beaten very badly with injuries uh, that were really beyond belief, very bad head injury, which, of course, in the end carried him away. And everybody was so unbelievably outraged about what had happened that they made sure they recorded this in the chart. And it's perfectly clear, reading that chart, uh, just how furious everybody was and uh, wanted to make sure that the person who had carried out such a deed was properly punished, which he was. There are, uh, what, approximately 25 stories? Yeah, it's, ab- it's about that, perhaps a few less, not many less. And, and you tell two of them personally. The other ones are told by the, the specialists in their own right. fields. Um, the first one you tell is is just an amazing story about <laughs> what can go wrong in the human body when it's treated the wrong way. But then there's the story within the story about the reaction of this same surgeon-in-chief with the bushy eyebrows when you think this is when you were a, a, a novice surgeon and you think you've realized something new. Why don't you briefly tell the story this this young fellow sure. presents himself and... <laughs> You, you won't believe what was in him. Well, <laughs> this fellow came in, he was 19 years old, and he came in with a very high fever on the medical service, and the medical house staff were putting needles in his chest trying to get some of the fluid out, which could be seen on x-ray just in the left chest. Couldn't do it, called the chief resident on the chest service, who was me at that time. I used bigger needles, couldn't get anything out. Finally took him up to the operating room, to do what uh, was called a mini thoracotomy. I just took about an inch of rib out and opened into the chest cavity. And to my amazement, to my assistant's amazement, little pieces of stool fell out in the middle of the pus. The pus had this dreadful feculent odor. The whole place was filled with it. Uh, I changed gloves, everybody changed whatever they were wearing. We opened the chest under general anesthesia and discovered that here we were looking down on his diaphragm, and there's this perfectly flat sheet of muscle, the diaphragm, with a hole in it about the size of my fifth finger, through which a couple of inches of large intestine had snaked, gotten twisted off, perforated, and stool from the large bowel was actually emptying out into the chest cavity, which caused the response and the fluid and, and the pus and all of this. And uh, I did what needed to be done. I uh, short-circuited the bowel by making a colostomy out of it. I closed the opening, this little opening in the diaphragm, closed the chest, and uh went downstairs. By now, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning to try to get a nap, but it was grand rounds. The big conference of the week was the following morning. And, and this injury had had been sustained years earlier. He had been knifed. When we finally found out what caused it, we looked at an old emergency room sheet that everybody had neglected to look at, and it told the story of this boy at age 15 having come in with a superficial wound just through the skin and fatty tissue, it seemed, from a knife fight. Someone had tried to steal his Mets jacket or some such thing. It was a Red Sox jacket. 
It was a Red According Sox jacket. <laughs> and it was a Red Sox jacket. Oh, that was New Haven. Of course it was a Red right. Sox jacket. And, uh, he went to the emergency room and the intern down there thought it was nothing, put a little antibiotic gauze on it and said, come to the clinic. Of course, the kid never came to the clinic and we could easily figure out, figure out what had happened, which was that the knife had been plunged in, in an upward direction pierced the diaphragm, and this fellow had pulled the knife out. Now, a hole like that should heal, but for some reason it didn't. So the boy was left with this very small hole that he'd been carrying around for about four years. And then one day, probably about a week before his hospitalization, the gut decided, here's my chance, and (laughs) made its way up into the chest. So Getting back to that night, uh, I couldn't sleep. Uh, I was to meet the professor at 7.30 in the morning just before Grand Rounds. We did that every day so I could tell him what had happened during the night. And I told him this story, and I was really very excited about it. And I said, gee, I, I, this must be a first. We're going to publish this. And, and you never know. It might get a self-called Newland syndrome. So he looked at me with a stern Swedish uh, Norseman. I could just see him coming over the horizon and and, and the country folks scared to death. Uh, He looked at me and said, I I suppose you think you're the first uh, surgeon that's ever seen something like this. And then I knew he had me Mm because he was a historian. And he took me into his office and he pulled down this 16th century book, a real octavo volume book big thing, started turning the pages and little bits of brown papers began coming off the pages. And there in the Renaissance French was the description by Ambrose Paré of a certain uh, major who, when one of the battles that the Catholics were always having with the Protestants got hit with a harquebus and or a musket, I can't remember which right now, and he died two weeks later. And when they did his autopsy, his chest was full of pus and he had a hole. And it was described in the French, the hole, comme un petit doigt, like a little finger. Which is exactly the way you had described it. Same thing. <laughs> so Newland really got his comeuppance on that one. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of this little interaction between you and and the, uh, the chief of surgery there, there was this very... Um, Kind of paternal moment that you had not seen exhibited from him before. Never, never before. It was a wonderful moment because essentially we had shared this thing. Essentially, he had brought me along in something that he was interested in, medical history, which I had not yet gotten interested in. As a matter of fact, this story started my medical history career. And feeling so pleased with both himself and me, he put his arm around my shoulder, and together we walked into Grand Rounds. Right, right. He was actually quite proud of you. For, exactly right. right. Yeah. And the other story you tell also culminates with a doctor putting his arm around you. The story you tell about the discovery of your daughter's hydrocephalus. Yeah. There are a number of stories in the book that bring to light for the general reader, the sense of the humanity of physicians, which often transcends what is expected of this profession where so many people think of self-importance, pomposity. My little girl was, my fourth child was born with hydrocephalus. 
which manifests itself at first by only an enlarged head, and her brilliant diagnostician father missed it, completely missed it. In any event, just to shorten the story, uh, she the diagnosis was made finally by her pediatrician. We had to take her down late at night to the emergency room. And this neurosurgeon, who is not the neurosurgeon we wanted to get, in fact, a man known for his arrogance, came in, examined her, and said, she's got to go to the intensive care unit. I've got to operate on her first thing in the morning. And then here I was, so many years senior to him, a couple of ranks senior to him in the academic hierarchy, and he knew just what to do because I was only somebody's father. At that time, he put his arm around my shoulder, and it was it was nurturing, it was reassuring, and to me, it represented the best kind of medicine. It's a very touching story about the the way that roles can just rapidly shift in that world of such stress and mm-hmm. high stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, the world of of medical education is, in some ways still back in the days of apprenticeships. I mean, we, we know that all of our physicians now go to medical school, but medical school is really the very beginning of training. I think, you know, I'm a fan of the, the TV program Scrubs. I don't know if you've... I've never seen it, actually. Seen it. Yeah. But it, there's an illustration there of a relationship between a senior physician and a new coming physician. And I think it does a better job, perhaps, than many other programs have done, of showing that relationship and how much education really happens once the former medical student sets foot in the hospital. The training is really one person showing another person how you do certain things rather than a classroom kind of training. We talk a lot in medicine about the concept of mentoring. Now, when one thinks of a mentor, one thinks of an individual who has taken on a younger person as his mentee, if that's the correct word. But in actual fact, mentoring takes place along the entire length of the residency program. In our surgical program, which I think was similar to probably most other surgical programs, the second-year resident felt a responsibility for the training of the first-year resident, and the third for the second-year resident, all the way up to the top. And we all took those responsibilities very, very seriously. And when we were the junior person, automatically sought out a senior person with whom we could identify. But there was always then the the man very few women in those days but by and large the man who was who seemed like the sage the man who was much older than us who'd had a vast amount of experience and who was nurturing us along to become very much like he was because it's not uncommon certainly was not uncommon for me in all my years of work how would Dr. Hayes have handled this problem, the great Mark Hayes, my major general surgical mentor? And I think almost any doctor who's in a specialty can tell you something like that, tell you a story like that. So that the um, the tradition gets passed down almost, if you ever speak to a concert pianist, they can tell you what their lineage is going back to Beethoven. But oh. Beethoven taught... List who taught this person, uh-huh. who taught that person, who taught me. I know the uh, the geneticists 
love to trade. There's actually a computer program to trace your lineage back to Thomas Hunt Morgan. But in medicine, this is also true. It's, it's much more extended, although in, in many cases it does still go down to one person, perhaps, uh, oh, who do you, who do you mention from Johns Hopkins? Uh, or William Stewart Halstead. Right. And I can trace my lineage directly back to William Stewart Halstead, as so many American surgeons can. Mark Hayes trained me. Sam Harvey trained Mark Hayes. Harvey Cushing trained Sam Harvey. And uh, uh, William Stewart Halstead trained, of course, Cushing himself. Right. So <laughs> yeah. there's, there's that relationship where these people are really you're, – you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants as you sit side by side with them, as uh, uh-huh. as some wag uh-huh. said. Um, let's finish with uh, a, a funny story from the book. Um, somebody was treating the the son of a uh, an airline executive. That somebody, Steve, was me. It was you. That's right. <laughs> it's, you also tell that story toward the end. Right? Yeah. Well. Uh, now Yale has a very sophisticated health plan for all of its students. But in the old days, about half a dozen of us used to do all the surgery for the Yale students. And uh, they were housed in an infirmary, which was about a mile from the medical school. And it was good for me because my house was on the other side of the infirmary. So I could, on the way home in the early evening, stop by the infirmary and see my post-operative patients. And I stopped in one evening to see a post-operative appendectomy. And the nurse said, would you see this fellow in the next room? He's got a dreadfully dislocated shoulder. And I said, well, you know, I'm not an orthopedist. I don't know a lot about dislocated shoulders. Yeah, but he's in so much pain. Maybe you could prescribe something because nothing has been prescribed. And I go in and I see this kid. He turned out, I believe, to be a sophomore. And he's sitting up in bed with his hand clutching, his right hand clutching the top of his left shoulder, not where one would ordinarily be holding for a dislocation. And his shoulder looked perfectly normal to me. And I said, how did this, how did this happen, this injury of yours? He said, well, I was playing soccer and I got knocked down, he said, and I don't specifically remember having my arm or my shoulder hit the ground, but this son of a gun, he kicked me in, in the abdomen as he went by and I was all out of breath. So they brought me here and lo and behold, I had this dislocated shoulder. How do you know it's dislocated? Well, I had the same pain when I was in high school, the same circumstances, and it was dislocated. Well, I always worry about someone who won't lie down because it means when he lies down, some irritating fluid is uh, sloshing up against his diaphragm and causing what we call referred pain to the top of the shoulder. And I said, you were knocked down, you were kicked in the abdomen, and now you're having pain, which is much less when you sit up and much more when you lie down. My boy, you've got a ruptured spleen. And we did some very quick lab work, and lo and behold, he was getting anemic. His white count was going up, and I put him in my car, which was right downstairs. I took him right to the emergency room, called the operating room, and said, we've got a ruptured spleen here that I have to operate on immediately. And as always, they said, fine, let's go. I got him up there, and sure enough, his spleen was bleeding like stink. And I took it out, and he did very well. And But before I did the operation, I called his parents. 
Turned out that his father was a vice president of a major airline no longer in existence. He was the vice president for engineering. And he said, we'll be there in a couple of hours. And because, of course, they could take one of those planes and come to New Haven from the Midwestern city in which they lived. So uh, <laughs> they stayed for a few days. And at the end of the few days, they were leaving. And the father said to me, uh, Dr. Newland, you know about my position with this airline. If you ever need any help with any travels that you're going to take, uh, you just let me know and I'll take care of everything. So I thanked him. And it turned out, this was in the early spring, that uh, I was going to England with my whole family that summer. I think it was to be in July, August, whatever. And so I thought I'll call my friend, my new best friend. So I sent him a letter, and uh, within about five days, I got a response from his secretary, and uh, he enclosed or she enclosed some travel brochures to aid me along the way, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> that, was, that was the extent of, of oh, the, yes. uh, the freebie that you wound up getting, oh, those yeah. travel brochures. When I heard many years later that the airline was going down the tubes, I, I felt a sense of justice. <laughs> <laughs> there are great stories in the book, um, uh, just you know, many of them are, are about this doctor-patient relationship. Some of them are diagnostic detective work. I particularly like the one about how somebody who was trained to figure it out, trained to notice it when it appeared, saw that an ankle issue actually meant lung cancer. That's, you know, we don't need to get it. We want people to get the book so they can read it yeah, themselves. Sure. But that's a terrific story. Um the the fellow who uh, won the silver star, but couldn't remember what he had done because the the uh, trauma had uh, been so extensive right. that it wiped out his memory for those two days. There were just great stories like that. It was a pleasure to read the book, and I hope everybody who's listening goes. It's a sh it's a, it's too short, as I said. <laughs> you can read this book in a couple of hours, and it's really worth doing. And I thank you so much for being with us. Today. Thanks an awful lot, Steve. I really do appreciate it. To see a Charlie Rose interview with Sherwin Newland, where he talks about the future of neuroscience, just Google Sherwin Newland and look for the Charlie Rose episode that also features Oscar-winning filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Seriously. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one. An analysis shows that the Kindle 2, Amazon's electronic book reader that sells for $359, costs about $300 to manufacture. Story 2, the next space shuttle will carry a basketball that was once dribbled by Edwin Hubble, the man for whom the space telescope is named. Story 3, in opening day ceremonies at the new Yankee Stadium, former players introduced included a prominent cardiologist and a man who has a surgical procedure named for him. And story four, the energy wasted on spam emails in 2008 could have powered 2.4 million homes for the year. Time's up. Story four is true. Antivirus software company McAfee 
says that there were 62 trillion spam emails last year, and the electrons wasted sending and reading those emails could have powered 2.4 million homes for the year. The carbon used accounts for about 0.2% of all global emissions. Story three is true. Former Yankees who were introduced on opening day included cardiologist and second baseman Dr. Bobby Brown, of whom Yogi Berra once said he reads books that don't have any pictures in them, and the ubiquitous Tommy John surgery is named for, you guessed it, pitcher Tommy John, who also appeared on opening day. Story two is true. Edwin Hubble was a forward for the University of Chicago basketball team between 1907 and 1909. Another Chicago alum is astronaut John Grunsfeld, and he intends to take the vintage b-ball into space to honor the athlete astronomer. The ball will then go on display at the university. All of which means that story one about the Kindle 2 costing $300 to make is totally bogus. Because an analysis by iSupply found that it costs Amazon only about $185 to make, which means that if sales lag, Amazon could easily drop the price of the Kindle and still make money. It's doofuses who had to have one right away that keep the price up. Doofuses like me. Birth. Death. Infinity. That's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, the new Siam magazine article, What Makes Us Human, and a slideshow on what you should know about the new Prius Hybrid, which does not have a Hemi, thank goodness. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.